If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, January 10th, 2022. Welcome in to the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host. Glad to have you here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time for the program. If you miss any of it live, you can listen live at GuyBensonShow.com or through Fox Nation or the Fox News app or on our great affiliates. Many ways to listen as we air for these three hours every afternoon Eastern If you miss any of that, you can, of course, get the free podcast on demand, no charge every day. GuyBensonShow.com and wherever you get your podcasts to get you all set up for free. You can subscribe. We always like that. Leave a review, preferably a kind one, if you are so moved. Programming note here on the Guy Benson Show. Tonight, I'll be on Special Report. Fox News Channel, Brett Baer's panel in the 6 p.m. Eastern hour. Hope to see you there. You can set your DVRs. On the radio side, we've got this lineup in store for you today. Congressman Byron Donalds, Republican of Florida. He will join us later this hour. Dr. Marty McCary of Johns Hopkins and a Fox News contributor. He will be here in the next hour. A lot to sort through on COVID and some of these interviews that Dr. Rochelle Walensky, CDC director, has been giving over the last couple of days, raising eyebrows, going viral. There's a few clips that I would say are out of context or are old. We will try to separate some fact from fiction with Dr. McCary. And I'll try to also answer an important question about hospitalizations and deaths on COVID. In our final hour, Carol Markowitz is going to be here. She had announced recently that she had had enough of New York City. She was moving her family to Florida. Well, she did it. She's not all talk, no action. She is now a Florida resident. We will check in with Carol from sunny South Florida in our final hour, the happy hour. How's it going? Apparently, she had an audience with Governor DeSantis. He had like a dinner party, and she was invited. I'm slightly envious, to be honest. How did that go? plus some of the insanity in the city that she left behind, including a new law that will allow non-citizens to vote in their elections in New York City. these, These Democrats, they are who we thought they were, to quote Dennis Green. That's all ahead on the Guy Benson Show today. Let's start with a Fox News alert, as we always do. And statistics, 60.7 million confirmed cases of COVID in the U.S. That's a fraction of the real number. The death toll, 836,915 deaths of Americans with or of COVID over the last two years. With or of. Keep that in mind as we prepare for our interview with Dr. McCary coming up later in the show. The Dow is down today. There were some really good days last week on Wall Street. Then it was sliding. Today it's very much sliding, down 357 points right now, trading at 35,876. We'll keep an eye on that. The trading day up on Wall Street 
ends in 51 minutes. I'd like to begin the week and the show talking about my former home city of Chicago. I went to college, as many of you know, in Evanston at Northwestern, then graduated, lived in Chicago proper in the city for three-plus years, started my career there. I have great affection for Chicago, great memories, great friends who were there, who are still there. I love going back to Chicago, but it very much has its downsides. Political corruption, crime, the weather. And these days, perhaps worst of all, the Chicago Teachers Union. We are now witnessing day four of the current strike. The teachers are saying, we're locked out. That's bull. They have decided to lock themselves and children out of schools. That's their choice that they're making due to health and safety, quote-unquote, concerns, which are bogus not supported by science. We've seen this before. We've seen indefensible shutdowns of classrooms before, of course, very early in the pandemic. That made sense. We didn't know what we were dealing with. We were wiping down groceries, right? But then, as the data started to show up, especially from overseas and some private schools in the U.S., wait, schools are actually doing okay. Kids are doing okay. Maybe we shouldn't close the schools. That should have been a pretty big clue about a course correction. Last academic year, there was no excuse to have schools closed. And yet, schools were closed many, many places across the country, particularly in blue states and blue cities. That's not a partisan or ideological statement. That is a statement of fact. Private schools were open and were open successfully. Schools in Europe, in the UK, were open and open successfully, in many cases with no masks. We brought you that study last week out of the UK. No statistical difference between masked schools and unmasked schools on COVID outbreaks. Imagine that. It's almost as if we've been saying it for month after month after month after month. Some Republican areas, Republican states, most notably Florida, said, we see this data. We are not keeping our kids locked out of classrooms. We need to have in-person learning. There'll be options, remote option for parents, mask option for parents, but we're also going to have the availability of in-person instruction with voluntary masking. That's what they've done in Florida, and it has been a huge success there. The idea that we are even discussing school closures in 2022 is appalling. Last week, I dedicated a whole segment on this program to reading through an article written by David Leonhardt in the New York Times. He's one of these COVID journalists who I think has done a good job. He's sensible. He actually looks at the data. He doesn't fuel hysteria. In fact, he often pushes back against the hysteria of the neurotic progressives who populate his audience. So even though he sometimes gets around to telling those truths a little bit belatedly for my taste, at least he does it. And he has an audience that might actually listen to him, including some very powerful people. And he went through the state of crisis facing American children right now because of COVID and 
largely because of their lives and their educations being upended by adults making scientifically questionable to indefensible decisions about things like schools and extracurricular activities. He talked about learning loss. He talked about behavioral issues. He talked about mental health, suicide attempts, academic progress. The list goes on. It is so well established that school shutdowns are terrible for kids. It is also so well established at this point that kids are extremely resilient in the face of COVID. They bounce back quickly. They do not get seriously sickened by COVID with vanishingly rare exceptions. And yet here we are, and it's not just Chicago. I just want to quickly say that. There are school shutdowns in the D.C. area, Virginia, Maryland, New Jersey, New York, Milwaukee, Massachusetts. I've seen major teachers' unions demanding closures in Minnesota, in Rhode Island. It's not just one city, but the third largest city, locking hundreds of thousands of public school students out of classrooms for now the fourth consecutive day, that to me is the most illustrative and highest profile example of what's happening. And it makes me so furious to see it. Mayor Lightfoot, with whom I have many, many disagreements, she and her party indulge this stuff. I keep saying this. Democrats who are now finally standing up for children, I'm glad they're getting on the bandwagon, having already enabled so much harm to kids and indulged this stuff and coddled these teachers' unions and sent a message of what they could get away with. Now the unions are like, right, let's, let's push it even further. Some Democrats have had enough, like Lori Lightfoot, who's really at war with her own city's teachers union right now. She's calling it an illegal strike. Others are silent, right? Major Democrats from Illinois saying nothing about this. The president of the United States, who called school closures an emergency for kids last year, he has said nothing himself. There's a bully pulpit, Mr. President. He's choosing right now not to use it against a special interest group that funnels tens of millions of dollars of taxpayer money to Democrats. The leader of the Chicago Teachers Union is saying, look, these are just all hard choices. Listen, actually, this is Cut 24, Jesse Sharkey making this point. Everyone's making a hard choice. It's the con- right, the context of, of this. I, people are making a hard choice about whether to go to the grocery store or not. No, it's actually not a hard choice. People need to feed their families. Going to the grocery store is essential. People who work in grocery stores have had to report for duty every single day during the entire pandemic, back when it was much deadlier and there were no vaccines, not during this Omicron stuff. All these teachers are vaccinated. Omicron is much less severe. These, these talking points that we're hearing from the teachers union in Chicago, it's like we're in a time war back to... April 2020. Feeding your family is essential. Educating our children is essential. But the teachers unions are making quite clear they don't believe that in many cases. It's like they're raising their hands for the third consecutive year. Actually, us doing our jobs and showing up for work is not essential. I think that people who are in charge of public policy and parents should take very careful note of that. And restructure the way that we do education in this country and not have people stuck in schools beholden to and run by these folks.
I mean, this is so abusive, given all the data that we have. This is a form of child abuse. It just is at this point. By selfish, ignorant, neurotic, lazy adults in the teachers' unions. That sounds harsh. It should be harsh. This uh, union boss also had this to say, cut 25. I hear the mayor say that she doesn't want to do remote, but honestly, that's just taking it, that's just a talking point. It's an idea. Remote is bad. Remote education is a tool. Teachers view remote education, yeah, it's not as good as in person. So it's a tool, he says, and remote learning being bad is just a talking point. That's the claim from the teachers union head. No, it's not just a talking point. It's the truth as has been demonstrated with study after study, leading to a clear picture of children in this country in crisis. Remote learning is a failure for millions of children. There has been so much ink spilled on this, so much information. He went on to say, well, back in the day, we only had two options. Like if there was a blizzard and you couldn't get kids to school, you'd either open the schools and a lot of people couldn't show up because it wasn't safe or you would shut the schools. Now we have this tool of remote learning. And it's just a talking point that it doesn't work. This isn't a blizzard. This is Omicron. We know what we're up against. We know what the trade-offs are. And it is safe to have schools open as we have learned for the last year and a half. And these clowns are trying to get people to drag back and like pull these people back to the spring of two years ago to try to scare them into believing that these actual BS talking points bear any resemblance to the science or the reality, and most people simply are not having it. This is science denialism by the teachers' unions. It is on full display. Their arguments are, I won't even call them weak. They are pathetic. I'm up on a break here, but when we come back, I have multiple friends, as I mentioned, in the city of Chicago, having spent years of my life there. And I've been hearing from some of them over the last few days. Day four and counting of yet another school closure. One of them, a mother sent me some information about what's happening to her kid. A young child in elementary school, Chicago Public Schools. Well, just wait till you hear this. I want to share you, share with you what she sent me. And I will do so as soon as we come back. Just getting started. Brand new broadcast week on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm Guy Benson. Continuing on this Chicago story, and I mentioned before the break, I've got multiple friends in Chicago, several of whom are Chicago public school parents. One has been sending me information, and she shall remain nameless, but she's a mother. I know the father, too. 
we're all friends, of a young elementary school student. And she sent me today her calendar from November, December, and January of actual school days of instruction over the course of these months. Bearing in mind that there were already so many school closures over the last year and a half. And in places like Chicago, schools were closed much, much, much longer than was justified by the science. But then finally they were kicking and screaming back to somewhat normal, but really not. She counted in the month of November just 16 days of actual instruction. Because you have the Thanksgiving break. They took the full day off on the 24th. There was a school improvement day where they cut a Friday in early November. There was something called Vaccine Awareness Day where they canceled school. That was another Friday in November. So 16 days of instruction that month. Then just 13 days in December because they had the entire week of Christmas off, like 20th, 21st, 22nd, those days were all off. The entire week in between Christmas and New Year's, those were off. So it's 13 days of school instruction in December. Then you start to see Omicron. They had school on the 3rd and 4th of January. Then, of course, they've been off the 5th, the 6th, the 7th, because the teachers refuse to do their job. They're on strike, this illegal strike. They're off today. There are rumors, and she's expecting, based on her projection, that they will be off for the rest of this week, too. Then you've got MLK Day. They'd be off next Monday. They have another scheduled school improvement, quote-unquote, day on a Friday late in January. If that all happens the way that is expected, her son will have 11 days of classroom instruction in the month of January. After the holidays, in a 31-day month. 11 days of instruction, and even that might be optimistic, depending on how long this thing drags on. This is so indefensible. Now, my friends are very smart people. They have the ability to have assistance, and the kid is really smart and precocious, and they're going to make do. There are a lot of families that cannot, where you have both parents working, paycheck to paycheck, working-class people. They don't have all these resources. They need their kids in school, and they're not getting their kids in school. And it's 2022, and it's because of this union. The Chicago Public Schools put out a memo that she sent me to all the parents explaining why schools are safe, despite the lying and the preening and the excuses from the teachers' union, including the fact, the fact, That data shows that kids and staff are safer in schools than out in the community. How long have we known that? Well over a year. That's the case in Chicago. They spent $100 million on mitigation like ventilation and that sort of thing. Not good enough, says the teachers union. They've got testing in these schools. Not good enough, says the teachers union. It is outrageous. The teachers' unions in this country, the people not standing up to them, the people making apologies for them, pay attention. They're telling us something clear. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. 
His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We continue. Thanks for being here on this Monday. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast free every day. Joining us now is Congressman Byron Donalds, Republican of Florida, the 19th Congressional District down there, Western Florida. And Congressman, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for making some time. Well, it's good to be back with you, man. Thanks for having me on. So we just spent the first half hour of the show today talking about what's happening, particularly in Chicago, but there are a few other places around the country as well, with once again schools being shuttered, allegedly because of COVID, with teachers unions insisting that it's not safe to be in school and inflicting more harm, more learning loss, more emotional strain, uh, more mental health deterioration upon children in this country who have been through a lot over the last year and a half. And I wonder what your reaction is as you look north and see what's playing out in Chicago and then maybe compare that and contrast that with what your experience and your constituents' conspira- experience has been like in the state of Florida over that same period of time. Well, the first thought is there's no reason why people have fled the northern states because their governments and their unions just don't know what they're doing. I mean, look, here's the deal. It's a great gig if you can get it where you get to stay at home you know, and not have to go into the classroom and actually teach kids if you get to quasi do it remotely. Yeah, it's a sweet gig if you can get it, but that's not what's in the best interest of children. Everybody knows that, but the Chicago Teachers Union doesn't seem to care. And the people of Chicago don't have the ability to do something different. So they're in a catch-22. Meanwhile, in Florida, you know, our teachers unions, they pretty much figured that out pretty quickly. That wasn't going to fly in our state because our, gover- our governor wasn't going to have any any of it. But then also parents have the ability, um, if, the, if the union was going to hold out, you know, they have the ability in our state to go somewhere else through charter schools or through um, uh, the public scholarship that now exists in Florida that's growing every year. So, you know, I feel really bad for those kids in Chicago feel especially bad for the parents who just want the best for their kids but this is what happens when you turn your city entirely over to the radical left uh they control everything and they don't care about you yep and you've got democratic leaders like the mayor there you know almost seeming furious and shocked that this is happening but they've been empowered to do this this is a lesson that the teachers union has learned in chicago and elsewhere they're flexing that muscle they're wielding that power they feel like they can get away with it And you pointed out, Congressman, this is part of the outflow of people from states like California, from states like New York and New Jersey, from states like Illinois. Those are some of the top states with people leaving. I mean, U-Haul has their report, people fleeing California. Uh, And that's not even a new phenomenon at this point. What has concerned people like me conservatives Mm -hmm. in recent years is you have people getting out of states that are failing them 
right, where taxes are too high, the services are bad, crime is getting bad, things are crumbling, the progressive politicians talk a big game and things continue uh, to sort of spiral. They say, well, okay, the cost of living is going up, this is crazy, we can't stay here anymore. Then they go elsewhere. So I think Californians heading down to Arizona or to Colorado, and they start the Californication process of these other states because they keep voting for the same party and making that same mistake and turning places that they're fleeing to for a reason into places that look increasingly and resemble more and more like the place that they just left. Now, the good news is in Florida, and it's sort of a mixed bag in Texas, but in Florida particularly, it does appear that the people who in recent months and years have moved to Florida from other places understand the reason why they're moving. And we've now seen more Republican registered voters in the state of Florida than Democrats for the first time in the modern era of politics. It's been a sea change to the right in Florida. Why do you think it is that your transplants down in your state are getting it and the Republican Party is benefiting from this exodus, whereas that's maybe not the case elsewhere? You know, I think we benefit from a couple things. One, you know, we just don't get people who come from other states. We get people who come from other countries. So if you look at what happened in Miami last election cycle, the Venezuelan community that has come to the United States, um, they know full well what socialism is. They watched the country of Venezuela be destroyed by Hugo Chavez um, when he took over that country. And they went from a prosperous country that was largely dependent on petroleum and oil production to a socialist country where you can't even get toilet paper. And that all happened within one generation. So the Venezuelan people know full well the impact of socialist policy. They know what happens when you're dealing with elected officials who use all the same uh, buzzwords of the Marxist left and start putting in those those policies that sound good. Fairness, don't actually justice. Work. Yeah, yeah. When they start using that stuff, they know about it, they hear it, and they want no parts of it. The second part is, you know, people who come to our state, you know, we're what California used to be in Florida. I've been saying for a couple of years now, as Florida goes, so goes the nation. That's what it used to be in California, but they destroyed that state. And I think the last part is, is that you have elected elected Republicans in Florida who are not afraid to call a spade a spade. They call it like it is. They tell it like it is. Uh, we're not shy, whether you want to talk about Gates or Governor DeSantis, myself, Kat Kamek, uh, Greg Stubbe, Brian Mass. I mean, we have guys up and down the roster and ladies, excuse me, ladies, and ladies who <laughs> will tell their voters the absolute unvarnished truth. And we're not concerned about what the local media says or the national media. We're about making sure that our state continues to be that bastion of freedom in the United States. Congressman Donalds, I want to ask you a question about critical race theory and the discussion around sort of racialism or racial indoctrination or, you know, identitarian politics in curricula in schools. You recently were on one of our competitor networks, really mixed it up debating this. Now, you happen to be black, so they have you on here as a black Republican that probably struggled to sort of figure out how to handle that because they often have their, their talking points about critical race theory is a lie. It doesn't exist. This is, you know, white fear and all of that. Talk about that experience and that segment that you did and what were the points that you were trying to make to that audience? 
Well, I mean, the first thing was, you know, Chuck Todd and those guys at uh, MSNBC, I mean, they were somewhat harmless. I think the bigger thing is they're not accustomed to somebody that just doesn't go along with the narrative. So that was probably, you know, caught them off guard. I think the other thing is, is that, you know, the the Democrats and big media and, you know, the people on the political left, they're quick to denounce the buzzword of CRT and say, oh, we don't teach that in schools. But, you know, the school board member who I was on there with, she said, no, we don't teach CRT. But she said, what we do is we educate our kids on their in, their innate biases that we, that they have. And we try to make sure that they manage their biases in a more effective way for our community. And I looked at her and I'm like, that's exactly what parents are concerned about. They don't yeah, want to manage their biases. They just want you teaching. They just want you teaching children. I think on a broader perspective, the thing that kind of gets lost in the shuffle is that critical race theory isn't just about what ends up with a teacher giving a lesson. It's the stuff that ends up in textbooks and in library material. It's the courses that teachers and administrators take through their diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, trainings that they do every single year, multiple times a year. And that's how critical race theory, if you will, ends up in our schools, in our institutions. It's mostly through the materials that they buy and through these trainings that they take. Yep. And so that's how the left has been pushing their agenda through the people who actually stand in front of our children. And that stuff obviously seeps into education itself. And, and you so, can't, you know, when, I, when we make those points, they can't argue it. And you can't tell parents that what they're hearing from their kids and what they're seeing when they come home or seeing, you know, when they were learning on Zoom or trying to, that that stuff doesn't exist. Yeah. You can't say this is all a figment of your imagination when it's right in front of you. We played the soundbite, superintendent of Detroit Public Schools, proudly boasting that they integrate, they infuse critical race theory, his word, into as much of their curriculum as possible, not just social studies, he said, but elsewhere. That's what he said. That's what he admitted on camera. He was proud of it. You can't tell people that they're crazy or they're racist because they hear those things or witness those things themselves and don't feel like that is appropriate for kids, especially young kids, in public schools or elsewhere. One more question on the race issue, Congressman. We talked about this uh, last week. And we're seeing it in New York. We've seen it in some other places as well. The New York Health Department has put out guidelines about uh, certain treatments for COVID and the distribution of those COVID treatments. And they're saying that people with pre-existing conditions or comorbidities or certain risk factors should be prioritized because there's not you know a huge amount of this stuff to go around there's some scarcity so they're doing some triage and some prioritization fine i think that probably makes sense but part of that prioritization that they're talking about says explicitly that being a person of color is a pre-existing condition it is a risk factor now i get there are disproportionate numbers of people in certain communities that have more risk factors and there might be complicated reasons fueling those risk factors but the literal color of their skin or their ethnicity it really is not in and of itself the pre-existing condition but that's the public health policy that we're seeing in new york to me that looks like textbook racism and i wonder what you make of it am i simplifying that too much no, you call it exactly what it is. I mean, look, the issue, look, first of all, as a black man in America, you know, do do we want to get help and try to find ways to excel and achieve in America? Of course we do. 
But if you're just going to single out all of the things and only look at the color of my skin, that's the actual thing that so many people fought and died in this country to stop. You know, we just want to be treated like everybody else. We just want to get a, a fair shot, a fair shake. You know, we want to have access to opportunities. And then at the end of the day, we got to make of it what we do, what we do make of it. Now, with respect to healthcare, specifically COVID treatments, um, should we be prioritizing people who have um, other morbidities and other health issues? Yes, we should, because the data is clear. Those people are the ones who are susceptible to the worst aspects of COVID-19 more than anybody else. But should you add in the color of somebody's skin? No, that's dumb. That's that's political pandering to try to make it seem that Democrats care about black people. When in truth, what actually is happening is Democrat policy and its idiocy is only making COVID hang around longer and make it worse. If you just prioritize the people who have health issues and have other comorbidities and make sure they got the treatments first, then that would take care of black people, white people, Puerto Rican people, Dominican people, Peru American people, people, Venezuela. I don't. I don't put everybody in Hispanic. That's that's disrespectful to people's culture. I call it like it is. But just treat people as individuals and take care of them as individuals. When you put in this equity, this equity nonsense that the White House loves talking about, that actually divides our country. It doesn't bring us together. Because what does that say to a white person who has comorbidities? They're going to go to the back of the line because of a black person who has comorbidities. Just take care of the people who are sick, man. Let's do that. Leave the politics and, and all the other nonsense off the table. That's not important. It's not necessary. It's not America. Lastly, Congressman, we are now on the final stretch toward a very important midterm election where Republicans, your party, very good chance to win back the House. I'd say a decent chance to win back the Senate. Some very important gubernatorial races as well, including in your state. Governor DeSantis is up for reelection. I saw just about an hour ago that one of your colleagues on the other side of the aisle, Ed Perlmutter of Colorado, an eight-term congressman from a swing-ish district out in Colorado, he has announced his intention not to seek reelection in November. And that, I believe, is number 26 or 27 when it comes to Democrats who are walking away in advance of these midterms. They're not going to seek reelection. Uh, what's your analysis of that slow drip, drip, drip with 10 months or so to go until that important election day? My analysis is simple. The Democrats are going to face a beatdown come November. Politically speaking, of course, I don't want anybody to take my words out of context. But from a political perspective, they're going to lose in a major way. The reason why is because their policies have been an abject disaster for the country. Everybody knows it. I don't talk, I don't care if you're talking about police, education, the economy, COVID, Afghanistan, um, immigration. I mean, it doesn't matter where you point to. Um, they've been a disaster. So, yeah, that makes total sense to me. You know, we think we're going to take back the House and take it back in a major way. But here's the deal. What we can't do is just relax and say, oh, we're going to take back the House. And right. that's good because Republicans are better. We got to have an agenda. We got to have policies that make sense for our country. And we have to promote them. And we can't be afraid of what the media is going to say or what the Democrats are going to say. We have to be leaders. We can't just sit back and let a majority happen to us. Because if that's the attitude of the Republican Party, then we're going to have a majority and not know what to do with it. It's like a dog that actually chase, gets the, catches the car when he catches the car 
car. He doesn't know what to do with the car. No, we need to be significantly better than that. We need to lead. We can't be afraid of what people think or what media thinks. We need to do what's in the best interest of the country. And if we do that, we think that the American people, not everybody, but the majority, the a party, a pretty good majority, actually, will be supportive of, of what be supportive of what we do and what we stand for. Yeah, and I think the other thing to warn about, and this is something that I'm going to spend time doing on this show, is to avoid complacency among right-leaning voters, Republicans, conservative, uh, you know, independents. If you start to read over and over again, oh, the Republicans have this in the bag, people might get complacent. People might say, okay, this is great. You read your own press. You really need that groundswell. You need that turnout. You need the grassroots. You need people to actually show up and vote and not just assume that the widely expected thing to happen is going to happen. Because sometimes in politics, everyone assumes something's going to happen, like Hillary Clinton is going to win in 2016, then it doesn't happen. And so I want to make sure there's a lot of guarding against that mentality over these next 10 months, because the wave that you're talking about, Congressman, can only happen if people are motivated and focused all the way up until November. And I'm sure we will talk to you again between now and then, hopefully multiple times, but for now we will leave it there. It's Congressman Byron Donalds, Republican, representing Florida's 19th Congressional District. Congressman, really appreciate it. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks for having me on. We will step aside and be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show, we were talking about the Chicago Teachers Union and some of these other schools being shut down elsewhere. And our last guest, Congressman Donalds, was talking about school choice. There was a debate on a school choice bill in Nebraska. And one clip from that debate on the floor of the legislature went viral. It's Nebraska Senator Justin Wayne. He is a Democrat. And he was explaining that he feels obligated to favor school choice. And he says he knows that won't necessarily be popular within some elements of his own party. But he issued a challenge to some people in his party. Listen to Cut 28. I will vote to kill this bill if you send your kids to one of the kids schools in my district that were waiting to turn around. If you do that, Senator Day, Senator Kavanaugh, John Kavanaugh, I know Michaela will. Everybody get on the mic and let's make that promise. Let's transfer the kids. So as we spend six, seven years in elementary school changing a school, your kid be a part of that change. And when they fall behind, when they don't have the resources, allegedly, when they're dealing with suspensions and things like that, then we can all go through it together. Yep. Put your money where your mouth is. Put your kids where your mind is and what you say you believe. So many of the people who oppose school choice are rich or privileged politicians whose kids don't go to underperforming schools, who aren't stuck in those types of schools. That should matter. And that senator made that point, I think, quite well. Middle hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Dr. McCary straight ahead. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. 
no charge, on demand. Catch me tonight on Special Report right around 6.40 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Brett Bayer and company, I believe it's myself, Juan Williams, Kimberly Strassel this evening. That's the slate, at least last I checked. So we'll see you there. Fox News alert as we begin the middle hour. The Dow rallies at the end of the day. And still closes down, but off-session lows, down just 166 points, ending the day at 36,068. With us now is Dr. Marty McCary, Fox News contributor, surgeon, professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins. He's also author of the book, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare, at Marty McCary on Twitter. Doctor, good to have you back here. Good to be with you, Guy. All right, there's a lot I want to get to. The first thing that I want to do is actually help debunk something and then allow you to add some important context, speaking more broadly about the general subject. There is a clip that is going viral on social media today that purports to show CDC Director Rochelle Walensky saying that 75% of all COVID deaths occurred among people who had four or more comorbidities. And it's only a short clip from Good Morning America earlier. Here's the clip that you may have seen in Cut 35. The overwhelming number of deaths, over 75%, occurred in people who had at least four comorbidities. So really, these are people who were unwell to begin with. Okay. The important added information about that statement that she made is she's referring to a study about vaccinated people who have died of COVID. So it's like 1.2 million vaccinated people of whom just 36 died. And of that tiny group of vaccinated people who died from COVID despite being vaccinated, 75 plus percent of them had four or more comorbidities. So she's talking about vaccinated people, not the broader population. So I just want to warn people, a little red flag here. If you see that clip, it doesn't quite show what the short version of it would possibly suggest. However, doctor, I think it is important to, number one, talk about how good the vaccines are at preventing serious illness and death. That's what this study sort of underscores. But even the number may not be 75%, but we do know that a lot of the deaths around COVID-19 did relate to at least one or more comorbidities. And a lot of people have been talking about trying to protect those folks and have a public policy posture directed at those people as opposed to the, you know, the broader community. That case has been made now for well over a year. And it seems like some people now are getting around to maybe thinking that's the right way forward. I just want to get your reaction to everything that I just said, because I threw a lot at you. <laughs> well, it's good to be with you, guy. You know, I wish we would have had this data at the beginning of the pandemic or earlier this year. We have been pushing the CDC nonstop. I've been doing it till I'm blue in the face, telling them we need data that tells us the characteristics of people who get in trouble with COVID without the vaccine and with the vaccine. And they don't produce this data. We learn about it too little, too late. What we know about the profile of the so-called breakthrough hospitalization and the breakthrough death, that's what you're referring to, is that among those who um, 
have a breakthrough hospitalization. It's about one in 26,000. That's all people, young and old. Of everyone vaccinated, one in 26,000 will show up in the hospital. Who is that one person? What What is the characteristics of that individual? North Dakota, of all places, provides a breakdown with characteristics. The average age is 72, and the average age of a breakthrough death is 80. Why don't we have this data? Instead, all we have is this blame game that there's this small segment of the population, including children under five, that we have to blame for widespread transmission. They will not let go of this outdated, now debunked doctrine that the vaccine stops transmission. It doesn't. So on that front, there's another side to this as well, or at least another element of this discussion that I think also plays into the point that you're making. And we'll get to some of this sound later this hour. But the CDC director was on Fox News Sunday yesterday, and our colleague Brett Baer was trying to get her to answer a related question, which is, and we do at the top of the show every day on this show, the case count and the death count in the U.S. We've done it for for two years now, basically. And the death toll in the U.S. is 836,915 right now. And I say those are Americans who have died from or with COVID. And the question that Bayer asked Walensky was, do we know of that number how many of them died sort of incidentally with COVID? They happened to have COVID, but they died really primarily of something else or died because of COVID. And she quickly kind of went off elsewhere and was talking about Omicron and her eventual answer was that data is forthcoming. Well, you know, the question that I keep asking is when is that data forthcoming? And I don't think it's, you don't have to downplay the seriousness of the pandemic or be a truther or an anti-vax person or anything to say having that kind of accurate data and understanding what the death toll from COVID truly looks like in this country and who are those people. That seems like pretty basic stuff to me, but we still don't have that basic stuff in a lot of cases. Yeah, that's right. So there are roughly 123,000 individuals in a hospital with COVID or for COVID. We're now, because the CDC has not been telling us this distinction, we're now learning among the hospitals reporting the breakdown that about 51% are not there for COVID. So we really have about 60,000 people in the hospital today in the United States for COVID. Now, just to give you a benchmark, I'm not downplaying that number, but that's about what we have in the hospital with influenza in the middle of a bad flu season, almost identical to those numbers. We have about anywhere, depending on the flu season, 400,000 to 740,000 hospitalizations for influenza in a typical season, which is a few months. It's a short season. So we've not been getting the full story. And of course, this information is guiding policy. We're hearing Supreme Court justices, you know, massively um, sort of misunderstand the reality of the situation. We have a Wall Street Journal piece that makes the case that Omicron is far less deadly, so that changes the calculus on a mandate. Can you and send yet, a copy? Can you send a copy of that to Justice Sotomayor, by the way, because she <laughs> she got that wrong the other day. But please go on. Yeah, she had a rough day on Friday. She did. Um, she, uh, so, but I, I really think that she believes the statistic that she's citing, even though it's off by 30-fold when she said the number of people, kids in the hospital. Uh, you know, you can ask Rochelle Walensky how many kids in the hospital today are on 
a ventilator for COVID. She didn't have that number. She doesn't have that number. So these are the numbers that you would think in an, at an agency with 21,000 employees, somebody would be on top of this. I mean, you'd think, but you'd also think we'd have plenty of tests at this point in the pandemic, and we don't. And it's just sort of just a cascading series of failures, some of which might have been a little bit more excusable in the early days and are totally not at this point. And this actually brings me to my next subject matter related to all of this. It was what we opened with today, the situation of day four of school closures in Chicago. And I talked about my friends who are grappling with this, who have kids in Chicago public schools, or in this case, out of Chicago public schools right now, just tearing their hair out. And it's not just Chicago. I saw that you reacted to a claim from a teacher's union out in Northern California that teachers being in classrooms right now is, quote, a death trap. I mean, the way that I described it at the top of the show, Doctor, was it feels like these arguments are what was being said and what was persuasive to people nearly two years ago. And they don't bear any resemblance to the reality that we have based on lots and lots of data at this point, but they're still in like the March, April, May 2020 mindset. What's your reaction when you see kids being locked out of schools by adults yet again in the year 2022, supposedly due to COVID and Omicron specifically? So once again, we see a the, the demonstration of a long pattern in the United States of ignoring mental health as a part of general health. And we see it over and over again. We've seen it with insurance companies, with employers. We've seen it throughout history. And again, we're seeing a complete dismissal of the fact that a suicide death is a death, a substance abuse death is a death. And we have now solid data that not only are we creating um, a situation resulting in more deaths with shutting kids out of schools, but we're also being extremely cruel to the kids. Look at the Brown University study. I'm going to quote it here. We find that children born during the pandemic have significantly reduced verbal, motor, and overall cognitive performance compared to children pre-pandemic. And they found that children in lower socioeconomic families have been the most effective. That's what we're doing to children by shutting them out of schools. We've started to hear rumblings here or there of new variants. There's something in France. There's this combination flu plus Omicron, and that has a scary name. There's some coughing condition for children that they're playing into or sort of trying to merge that with, uh, with Omicron or with COVID, even though that's a condition that's lasted and has been around forever. It, it kind of feels like sometimes there are folks who are incentivized to frighten us. And COVID is scary enough unto itself. If you just told us the straight facts, it's scary enough. But it seems like it's never enough. And even when the news is good, like it has been, relatively speaking, about Omicron, it's like, and I understand the mentality of, of average people just, you know, constantly worried about another shoe dropping because it's dropped and dropped and dropped for two years. But there's also an element of the public health bureaucracy that does this, certainly the media as well. What would be your roadmap, doctor, for people when they hear about a new variant, rather than immediately panicking, what are the first couple things people need to look for and consider before they decide whether or not this new variant is something that they ought to be scared about or, you know, or, or it might be relatively harmless? 
Well, we're going to have a lot of new variants in the future. A lot of these coronaviruses now from COVID-19 are circulating in the animal kingdom. Millions and millions of different animals at all sorts of different species have had this. And they're going to kick out variants as that virus replicates in those populations. We're going to have variants probably forever. The, the question is, are you going to react to, hey, this new variant has now been described, or are you going to react to hard data? So I would encourage people to wait for the data. Look how we've overreacted to so many pieces of potential information, even Omicron. Look at the way that we impose stricter restrictions on all sorts of people in the United States because of a far more mild variant. And we still hear public health officials talk about it as if it's an open question. Now, I'm not saying it's just the sniffles. No, but it's like influenza. And what we're seeing right now is this being treated like it's an open question, like it might be more mild. It, does, it is not infecting the lung t cells deep in the respiratory system. It's staying superficial. It's in the upper airways. It's in the bronchus. You're blowing it off more. That's one of the reasons why it's more con contagious. You're, it's replicating more of the bronchus. You're not seeing the severe illness. The ratio of people in an ICU versus on a hospital ward or in a regular hospital bed is radically skewed now with Omicron. That's what the doctors are telling me around the country. Of course, the CDC cannot tell you how many Omicron deaths we've had in the United States or if we've had any Omicron deaths. Yeah. Initially, <laughs> there was this in sort of in, in insanity around one death in Houston. Then it came out that the public health director said it could have been with Omicron. Yeah, I mean, and these distinctions, of course, matter a lot. Finally, just about a minute left, Dr., you mentioned it, and look, we can. I think we can be honest about this. The vaccines are very good at preventing people from going to the hospital and preventing them from dying from COVID, and we've talked about why. We, you rehearsed some of those statistics a moment ago. Uh, it's a lot less successful at preventing infection, particularly from Omicron, which is very, very contagious. If the vaccine primarily serves to keep you from getting severely sick, but it doesn't really prevent people from getting infected or from passing the virus around. Does that medically, in your view, weaken the case for vaccine passports, vaccine mandates, that sort of thing? About a minute, sir. At this point, if someone chooses not to get vaccinated, they do so at their own individual risk. We cannot blame the vaccinated or the unvaccinated for giving you an infection at this point. There's no distinction. And I think we need to let go of that doctrine that somehow the vaccinated are protecting society um, you know, we've got to follow the data and not follow the hysteria. Right now, there's a lot of hysteria. Dr. Marty McCary, Fox News contributor. I mentioned he's a surgeon, also a professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins and their School of Public Health. His book is The Price We Pay. Dr. McCary, we always appreciate your time here. We look forward to talking again very soon. Good to be with you, Guy. It's The Guy Benson Show. We will return after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. Here's an item from Politico. The headline is Hyden Biden. If you feel like you haven't seen many sit-down interviews with President Biden in his first year as president, it's probably because you haven't. Quote, as Biden wraps up his first year in the White House, he has held fewer news conferences than any of his five immediate predecessors at the same point in their presidencies, and he has taken part in fewer media interviews than any of his recent predecessors. That's according to the Associated Press. 
Still quoting from the AP, the dynamic has left the White House facing questions about whether the president, who vowed to have the most transparent administration in history, is falling short in pulling back the curtain on how his administration operates and missing opportunities to explain his agenda to Americans, end quote. And the White House says, well, he does a lot of these informal things where he'll take a question or two, and we know that those are truncated and often short. It doesn't offer an opportunity really for pointed follow-ups and that sort of thing, unlike sit-down interviews, unlike formal press conferences where it's sustained questioning. That's what they're avoiding at the White House. And our former colleague Chris Wallace talked about this on my show last year. He's saying, well, it's obvious why they're doing this. They don't trust him to do a good job. They're worried about what would happen in those settings. So I think that's just obviously plainly correct. The AP story says, well, you know, is, and this is their question, by not doing these press conferences and not availing himself uh, himself of a lot of interviews, is the president missing opportunities to explain his agenda? I think what the White House press team and comms team is worried about is the president trying to explain his agenda to America because it doesn't work. He's not good at it. He has his moments. He's good on certain things, but think about some of the sit-down interviews he actually has deigned to do in recent memory. It hasn't been many, especially national interviews. He had the one with Stephanopoulos during the Afghanistan debacle. It was terrible for him. He said things that were just false. He misremembered things. He made a promise about leaving no one behind that he then broke immediately. That turned out badly for him. Then he did David Muir at ABC News just before the holidays saying, oh, gosh, I wish I'd thought of getting more tests two months ago. And it turned out, of course, they had given had been offered that opportunity and they passed in the Biden White House. That was another flop for him. He's not doing these things for a reason. It's the Guy Benson show talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson show. Welcome back. Glad you're here. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day. So I was teasing on Friday that I was going to be co-hosting the big show Saturday and Sunday on Fox News Channel in the 5 p.m. hour. And on Saturday's show, we go around the horn and talk about our biggest flops of the week. And I awarded my dishonor to Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, Sonia Sotomayor, for reasons that we outlined on Friday's show. During oral arguments, she had made a number of of factually false assertions while defending federal mandates in a pair of cases. We had Shannon Bream on the show talking about those cases, and then I sort of went off here on the radio as well on Sotomayor because I don't expect to agree with the jurisprudence of Justice Sotomayor or the liberal justices. I expect often to disagree with them. What I do expect is for them to at least do a modicum of research where they are arguing based on established facts, even if they end up in a different place or with a different conclusion, it is really quite embarrassing what Sotomayor did during those oral arguments. Effectively just pounding the table and making stuff up. It was extremely unimpressive. In fact, she got four Pinocchios from the Washington Post based on her misstatements of fact, you would call it, I think, Accurately, you would call it misinformation on COVID. So I would say maybe the biggest whopper, well, she had a couple of different ones, honestly. One, for example, was that she said Omicron 
is as deadly as Delta. That's not true. She also said this about kids in serious condition in hospitals, even on ventilators. This is from the oral argument, cut to Friday. Those numbers show that Omicron um, is as deadly uh, and causes as much serious disease in the unvaccinated as Delta did. Um, We have hospitals that are almost at full capacity with people severely ill on ventilators. We have over 100,000 children, which we've never had before, in in serious condition, and uh, many on ventilators. Okay, so let's unpack several of those claims that we just heard there from one of nine justices on the Supreme Court. And I saw that there were some Sotomayor defenders or apologists who were trying to claim that Justice Gorsuch also was spreading false information because he said that hundreds of thousands of people die from the flu every year. It's actually not what he said. The transcript was wrong. The audio made clear he was saying hundreds. Then he paused and he said thousands, not hundreds of thousands. He upgraded from hundreds to thousands. The real number in America actually is tens of thousands. So if anything, he understated it. So there was no both sides. Oh, you had a conservative justice who got something wrong, and you had a liberal justice who did the same thing. Oh, well, no. These are not the same. Gorsuch was accurate. If anything, he was understating his case. Sotomayor was pulling stuff out of thin air and making it up. So the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, was on Fox News Sunday yesterday morning with Brett Baer. And to his credit, Brett pressed the CDC director repeatedly on a number of questions, trying to just get a straight answer on the facts out of this public health official. And it was very clear how uncomfortable Walensky was, because Walensky is Biden's CDC director. She understands that there's perhaps some politics laden in the questions because you had an ideologically left-wing justice making these brazenly false statements about COVID, In a very high-profile setting, she's being asked to fact-check that justice on Fox News, and she really doesn't want to do it. And yet the statements were so wrong by Sotomayor, she sort of gets dragged, Walensky does, into quasi-slapping down the claims by Brett, who had to try pretty hard. So, for example, in Cut 5, here is Brett Baer asking Dr. Walensky about the relative deadliness of Omicron and Delta. We just heard Sotomayor in that clip say that they are roughly equally deadly to one another. That's not what the data actually shows. Isn't that right, Dr. Walensky? Here's what that sounded like in Cut 5. The questioning in the Supreme Court also said that Omicron was as deadly as Delta. That is not true, right? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Omicron is not as deadly as Delta, at least by your data right now, right? We are starting to see data from other countries that indicate um, on a person-by-person basis it may not be. However, given the volume of cases that we're seeing with Omicron, we very well may see death rates rise uh, dramatically. Okay, so this to me is a very slippery answer. The reality is, if you look, and I'm not just making this up, I'm not pulling a soda mayor here. I'm citing the BBC and the New York Times and press reports and data out of South Africa, and the UK, and here in the United States, and clinical trials and studies, every single data point that we have, every major significant data point from around the world and in this country 
blessedly indicate that Omicron is less deadly, less severe than Delta. Significantly lower chances of hospitalization, significantly less death. The death spikes never really came in South Africa, for example, which we believe was the hot spot, at least the initial hot spot for this new variant. And by the way, South Africans, a lot less vaccinated than we are here in America. So when Sotomayor says they're equally deadly or they're basically just as lethal, that's not true. Brett asks the question and Walensky says, well, we're starting to see data from other countries that may indicate that it may not be as deadly. That is underselling it to the point, I would argue, of being deceptive. Because the data actually is quite clear, and it's not just early indications. The Omicron wave has passed in some of these places, peaked or passed. And the results, thankfully, speak for themselves. Sotomayor was just wrong on this point. Now, it might be true that the U.S. is going to have a deadlier time with Omicron than other places. That might be because of comorbidities. That might be because of, for example, obesity and the issue we have in this country with that. But relative to Delta, there is no indication that Omicron is anywhere near as deadly, which is a good thing, despite the fear-mongering. All right, so then there was another question from Brett Bayer to Rochelle Walensky on Fox News Sunday pertaining to the assertion from Justice Sotomayor about children. Sotomayor said that there are 100,000 kids in serious condition in the hospital, many on ventilators. That was what she said. That's not even close to true. And the statistics look a lot closer to 3,500 American children currently hospitalized. That has nothing to do with serious condition, by the way. Just 3,500 kids, as of the last round of data, in hospitals testing positive for COVID in the country. Again, that's not in the same ballpark as 100,000. And it wasn't just 100,000 hospitalized that she claimed. It was 100,000 in serious condition, just way, way, way off. It bears no resemblance to reality. But that's what Sotomayor argued in the course of oral arguments on Friday. And so Bayer again tried to get a straight answer out of Dr. Walensky on this point. Isn't it not true that even though the Supreme Court Justice said 100,000 kids are in serious condition in hospitals, many of them on ventilators, that the real number of just kids hospitalized at all with COVID is closer to 3,500. And by the way, a huge chunk of that number, depending on what you look at, 60%, two-thirds, 50%, 40%, a very large percentage of the kids hospitalized, quote, with COVID, tested positive for COVID incidentally. They didn't show up at the hospital because they were struggling to breathe because they had COVID symptoms. They showed up at the hospital with like a broken arm or something. And then due to the process, right, protocols, you have to get tested if you're going to get admitted to the hospital. And, oh, the test came back positive. That's a very different thing. But that type of case is included in the 3,500, which I will remind you is a very far cry from 100,000, the claim by the Supreme Court Justice. Here's how that back and forth went yesterday between Brett and Walensky cut one. 
Here's what I can tell you about our pediatric hospitalizations now. First of all, the vast majority of children who are in the hospital are unvaccinated. And for those children who are not eligible for vaccination, we do know that they are most likely to get sick with COVID if their family members aren't vaccinated. So the most important thing we can do for those children to keep them out of the hospital is to vaccinate them and to vaccinate their family members around them. Understood. But the number is not 100,000. It's roughly 3,500 in hospitals now. Yes, there are, there are. And in fact, what I will say is while pediatric hospitalizations are rising, they're still about 15 fold less than hospitalizations of our older age, age demographic. Yeah. And a bunch of those are incidental, as I noted. I didn't actually play in that clip the first question from Brett, where he's specifically talking about the misinformation from Sotomayor, 3,500 versus 100,000. And immediately Walensky answers not that question. She immediately pivots to her pre-prepared talking points about vaccination. That's fine. If you want to be focused on vaccination, you're the CDC director, you want to make sure that you get that message out for the, what, 11,000th time, fine. But when you are asked a direct question about COVID misinformation, you should answer that question. And she didn't. She spun off into something else. It took the follow-up from Brett, again, to his credit, saying, yeah, okay, got it, but... On these numbers, that's not right. And the real number is 3,500, right? And finally, we get the answer, yes. So it took a little prodding there. And then, finally, because we didn't have Walensky's answer yet on comorbidities, which we talked about earlier in the hour with Dr. McCary, but Brett was trying to get at, I think, a very important question. Because as we've been talking about, at long last, we are finally allowed to talk about the with versus of distinction that I just mentioned a moment ago. So-called of COVID hospitalizations versus being in the hospital with COVID, happening to test positive for COVID, even though you're there for some other reason, some other malady, some other condition, some other accident or what have you. And we've known for well over a year that the hospital numbers have been inflated by this phenomenon. We just weren't really supposed to say it too loudly. But now that Fauci has decided it's okay to talk about, maybe the Biden administration is realizing, okay, shutting down the virus, it's not happening. Let's start leveling with people because now we need to for our own political reasons. Whatever the reason might be, Fauci's talking about it more. We're hearing it from folks like Walensky. New York State is starting to get a lot more specific about the of versus with hospitalization count. Well, what about deaths? I asked this question last week, and I made clear I've always considered COVID to be very serious. I have not downplayed it or blown it off. That's not what we've done on this show. We've been big advocates for getting vaccinated, for example. As you all know, you can believe all of those things and also think that we need the best information possible about the true death count from COVID, not necessarily with COVID. Is that number approaching 850,000 roughly accurate? Or is it inflated where X number or X percentage of those deaths were people who died for other reasons, where COVID was tangential? Do we have good data on that? Brett asked that question to Walensky. Listen to cut four. Do you know how many of the 836,000 deaths in the U.S. linked to COVID are from COVID or how many are with COVID, but they had other comorbidities? Do you have that breakdown? 
Um, yes, of course, with Omicron, we're following that very carefully. Our death registry, of course, um, takes a few weeks to and is, uh, takes a few weeks to collect. Um, and of course, Omicron has just been with us for a few weeks, but those data will be forthcoming. Well, she didn't ask about Omicron specifically. She went to Omicron. He was asking broadly about the 836,000 deaths at the time. How do those break down if we're talking about the of versus with distinction? And the ultimate punt there from Walensky was those data will be forthcoming. Okay, when? So I think Brett asked a very important question. We didn't really get an answer. We got closer to an answer, it seemed, this morning on ABC News. This, to me, is a very important data point that we need to keep after. This question needs to keep getting asked until the government gives us credible evidence pointing to an answer based on numbers and analysis. Because we can't have an intelligent, cogent, rational conversation about COVID without that kind of information, which is why it feels like we've been adrift in this country for as long as we have, and why it has felt very frustrating to many of us. I know I'm speaking for many of you on that front. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this break. Don't go anywhere. A tribute to another comic genius gone too soon. That's next. Guy Benson will be right back. I was on a show called The Morning Program on CBS and I got fired. That was on against Good Morning America and The Today Show. And they said, You're, my chair was gone one morning. And... <laughs> And That's my, the way they do it. My friend and manager, Brad Gray, said, well, you know what? Um, they want you. And they did shoot the pilot of Full House with another gentleman playing really? my role. And uh, Dave Coulier and John Stamos had been cast already. And I never, knew, I never knew John, but Dave I had been friends with. He stayed on my couch when he was 17 as a comedian, just a friend. He stayed on my couch only as a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> and I ended up leaving the show that I was fired from, coming to L.A., and they reshot the pilot and put me in it. Back on The Guy Benson Show, that was Bob Saget. Back in 2014, an interview describing how he ended up on Full House, a show with which he, of course, is very closely associated. I probably know Bob Saget or became most familiar with Bob Saget based on his work on America's Funniest Home Videos. Or he was the host what, for multiple seasons of that show. I think the show is still on the air. They've gone through a ton of different hosts, but Bob Saget was sort of the quintessential AFV host. He did a great job. And yesterday, just a shocking piece of news, Saget was discovered dead in a hotel room. And we don't know the details yet. I saw one report that he just died in his sleep. He was only 65. He was revered in the comedy world. Just the outpouring of love and shock and grief over his passing has been tremendous. I think back to Norm MacDonald passing away last year. Then Betty White at the very end of the year. And now Bob Saget. And it's very sad. One of the strange juxtapositions in Bob Saget's career is his persona on Full House and America's Funniest Home Videos versus the content of his stand-up, which was off the charts raunchy. But one consistency was that people who knew him loved him and say he was just a kind, warm prince of a guy. And he died young, 65. That report 
emerging yesterday. Rest in peace. Our thoughts and prayers to the Saget family and his many, many fans around the world. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Carol Markowitz has landed finally in Florida. The move has happened. We'll get a check-in with her straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Easing right into the Monday happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in tonight. Special report with Brett Baer. I'll be on the panel this evening. That's in the 6 p.m. Eastern hour coming up after the radio show. Our website here is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every single day at the end of the show, on demand, round the clock, 24-7. No charge to you. You can follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show. That's Twitter and Instagram. My personal handles on both of those sites and both of those platforms, Guy P. Benson. That's on both. Our website, though, is the one-stop shop, GuyBensonShow.com. We recommend it. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. I've gotten some word that a major expansion into multiple states, and not just a handful, is forthcoming. That should be announced and unveiled pretty soon. I cannot wait to tell you about the long drink coming, in all likelihood, to a state or area near you if it isn't there already. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for that. We will have your long drink updates here on the Guy Benson Show. Of course, they sponsor the happy hour. TheLongDrink.com is their website, TheLongDrink.com, 21 plus only, and always drink responsibly. And I'll tell you this, this hour is not sponsored, and today's show is not sponsored by the state of Florida, or like the Chamber of Commerce of Florida, or the state's Bureau of Tourism, although it kind of feels like it. The member of Congress from Florida, a few other comments I made about Florida, we'll have more to say about the governor of Florida tomorrow. And now our first guest of the final hour is a newly minted Floridian talking about her new home in Florida. I swear it just has all aligned this way organically. It's Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post and FoxNews.com, longtime New Yorker, not anymore. Carol, great to talk to you again. Last time we spoke, you had finally made the decision, that's it, I'm out, I can't do this anymore, even in the city, New York that you love so much, you were going to move your family down to Florida. Last week we tried to get you on the show because you were literally making the move. How did it go? Hi, Guy. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. Uh, it is fantastic. It's amazing. And it's not easy is, is the, the key thing that I want to say to people. Um, it is not easy to leave 
where you wanted to live your whole life. We had a plan in mind where we were going to, you know, raise our children in Brooklyn, retire to Manhattan. Our family all still live in New York. And just in general, moving your kids to another state. I'm sitting right now on the one piece of patio furniture that my husband's managed to construct. And, uh, you know, we're hoping that the other 18 pieces will make it someday. Um, So, yeah, it's not an easy thing, but it has been incredible. And when I, you know, people on Twitter also accuse me of, of being paid by Florida or by, by Ron DeSantis or whatever. <laughs> you know, my comment has been, well, I'm only paid in freedom. I'm paid in freedom, and that's why I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, it's sort of like you kind of wish you could get paid, right? It's When everyone tells me that, oh, I'm paid off by this special interest or that, I'm like, I'm really not. I'd be much richer if I were. There's no one incentivizing you to go to Florida except for what the way of life is, the freedom the benefits of living down there, the lower cost of living, certainly compared to New York. I want to ask you, having now made the move, and you don't have to get too specific, but roughly where are you in Florida? Are you in South Florida? Yeah, South Florida. Okay. How has it been on your kids? Because it's one thing to have to move in the middle of school, and you've got friend groups, you've got sort of your own life established because your kids aren't that young anymore right i mean there's a range but it's a big deal to move at any age but particularly in formative years and then you layer on top of that carol the highly publicized and visible nature of the move where your mom is out there talking about moving all the time that's got to be also sort of a complicating factor for them and their friends and you know comments at school or in the neighborhood. How's it been on them? So they've been very good. Um, I would say it's hardest on my oldest because she's 11. She was in middle school. She right. had her friend group, just like you said. Um, my eight-year-old also, you know, had And by the way, middle school sucks, tough. period. Yeah. Like middle school yeah. is always <laughs> terrible. And then to get uprooted yeah. and totally sent to a right. new place and you're the new kid in class, that's sort of a nightmare. Yeah. But this too shall pass. Right. She's remarkably well adjusted, which uh, is weird to me because I was nowhere nearly nowhere near as cool as her uh, when I was in middle school. But yeah, so I think in general, they're great. Just the fact that they're going to school maskless, um, that they're able to do things in school that we just in the blue cities have completely forgotten about. I mean, I tweeted about this. I'm going to have a piece in the post on it tomorrow. But my youngest son, uh, he was in first grade in New York, but the cutoff is different. So he's back in kindergarten in Florida. And he had this thing called rug time, circle time. Everybody kind of knows what it is from when they were little, uh, but we've stopped doing that in blue areas because it's not safe. You can't leave your seat. You can't come too close to anybody else in your class. And we used to understand that this kind of stuff was important for the formative years, and now we just have discarded it as if it never mattered at all. Um, My middle schooler, uh, she met a girl last week in one of her classes, and then they just had lunch together in the cafeteria. That's not possible in New York. You're not allowed to leave your class in New York, and you're not allowed to speak to anybody if you're inside the cafeteria. So my daughter actually preferred eating school lunch uh, outside on the ground because at least she got to talk to her friends in New York. So it's just been amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And what's crazy about it is that people have completely accepted it and not challenged it and are just going along with it, hoping it ends at some point. But I don't know when and if it does. And I'm just so happy my kids are somewhere that's normal. I want to look 
in your rearview mirror back at the city that you just left. But before we do that, two more things about Florida. Number one, it's just sort of fascinating. Here you are. It's a school night. The kids were in school today. They'll be in school tomorrow. They don't have to wear masks. They can be kids. It's going to be safe. That's the way it's been in Florida now for a year and a half. That's your new normal. So congratulations on that. You, on your way to South Florida, it would appear from your social media footprint, made a bit of a pit stop somewhere along the way, whether it was Tallahassee or elsewhere. I admitted on the air last week that looking at your Twitter and Instagram and then a few of my other friends, Dave Rubin, a few other folks that I know like Lisa Booth, seems like Governor DeSantis had, what, like a welcome party for you? What happened? (laughs) Yes, we had an event at the governor's mansion, um, and it was great. Uh, You know, he was really terrific, very welcoming. I mean, it was a lot of new Floridians, and it was just a really great time getting to know a governor that we all respect so much. You know, I was thinking about this, like I've liked politicians before. I'm not going to lie, even though I generally don't like liking politicians, but usually it's like, oh, they made a speech that I enjoyed or, um, you know, I, I, I kind of liked them before they took office and then they either disappointed me or they didn't. In this case, I knew nothing about Ron DeSantis until you know, 2020, when suddenly he started making very bold decisions in the wake of COVID-19. And I thought those decisions were excellent. And I loved the way he was handling things. So it wasn't like he gave a powerful speech. And that's what, you know, brought me around to to him. It was that he was leading and... Yeah, it was his governance, exactly. And and the fact that I thought that the rest of the country would not be where we are today open-wise. We, I think even blue areas were forced to, to open because he proved that we weren't going to all walk outside and die. Um, so it, it, it's a really big well, deal. Especially in schools. He did. Yeah, that was, and he yeah. went out on a limb, right? He was on yeah, solid, right. sturdy terrain in terms of the science, but in terms of public right. opinion and elite opinion, absolutely mm-hmm. not. He went out on that limb, and the school children of Florida are infinitely better because of it. And I think it really did force some tough questions that are still being asked right now as we open on the show today, talking about Chicago, for example. But I just want to tell you, Carol, to come full circle on your dinner at the governor's mansion, I was absolutely having a bit of Florida FOMO looking at all of this going down. It looked very fun. I'm just curious, and I'm would imagine this was probably an off-the-record dinner. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to, yeah. to betray anything that you're not supposed to. But just in general, because DeSantis has such a national profile, because there's this conversation, of course, around his re-election bid this year, rumors about what he might be aspiring to yeah. two years from now, etc., having watched him from a distance and then been persuaded to move to his state, now meeting him and breaking bread and hanging out and chatting with him behind closed doors, what's he like in real life, in person? Like, as a person, is he warm? Is he technocratic? Mm -hmm. Because he's got sort of a nerdy edge to him, but he's also a populist. I'm just curious what your impressions were of the man. He was so real and down-to-earth. That's what the impression I came away with. The dinner was off the record, uh, but, you know, amongst ourselves, the guests, of course, of course discussed uh, whether, you know, he 
will run in 2024, etc. And it was funny because we were all new Floridians and we were like, it's, maybe it's better for us if he doesn't run in 2024. But, you know, we, we understand we need to share our governor with the country. Um, he was really smart and uh, very sharp and just knows a lot about a lot. And in general, it was just very impressive. I continue to be impressed by him and really annoyed at myself that I like a politician. And maybe kicking yourself a little bit that you didn't get down there sooner. From New York City, last questions about New York City. Eric Adams is the new mayor. He is clearly an upgrade from Bill de Blasio. There's no question about that. I mean, it's a very low bar, but he's clearly an upgrade. He said some very good things about keeping schools open and the importance of businesses being operating. And he's thrown a few brushback pitches, for example, against, uh, you know, some of the excesses of Black Lives Matter and crime. He's already doing battle with this soft-on-crime DA, but you've now got this question about patronage and and hiring his brother for this position. There's questions about uh, his brother's professional background and whether he's qualified for this gig. As I believe a deputy police commissioner, he's talking more and more about white supremacy in New York, Mayor Adams is, and now he's also kind of flip-flopped and he's allowed this crazy new law to go into effect. He had expressed skepticism about it as a candidate, but now he's the mayor and he's saying, well, you know, I we had some conversations and I'm comfortable with the law that will allow roughly 800,000 non-citizens in New York City to vote in municipal elections. And if this is what voting rights looks like, and we're seeing this in some blue places in California too, they're trying to expand the franchise to non-citizens. And I think that that is extremely radical. That is not something that most Americans support. It makes a lot of people, I think, rightfully skeptical and sort of suspicious is the end game to expand this ultimately more places around the country, perhaps to illegal immigrants. It kind of fulfills some really wacko left-wing stereotypes. And here's Eric Adams in the first week of being mayor. Good on some things. I'll give him mixed grades, but not necessarily burnishing those moderate credentials early on in terms of actions. Your thoughts? Right. Yeah, you know, it doesn't take a lot to be better than Bill de Blasio. So he has cleared that bar. But I think that just being in office and being a Democrat in New York City, I think he's going to be pushed left. And we're watching it happen in real time right now. The thing with his brother is just such a weird misstep. Like he had to know that was going to be an issue. And then to to cover it up by saying, oh, he's afraid of white supremacy and, and somebody harming him in some way and his brother is going to protect him. I mean, it just sounded cuckoo doodle do. Um, so I'm really, I'm really not sure what that's all about. But the, the leftism, it just, it's going to happen. He's going to be pushed left by special interests around him. Uh, and that's really the, the peril of electing a Democrat in New York City is that, it, yeah, he might have ran as a moderate because that was the only way that he was going to win. Um, but it's, it's clear that he has to govern sort of more to the left than he had intended to keep a lot of different factions of his own party happy. Yeah, and I think that's when you have the teachers unions and their massive overreach then the defund the police stuff, which was a massive overreach, and elements of the party still very much believe in that. Then you've got the backdoor defunding the police through left-wing DAs, decriminalizing crime, now extending the so-called right to vote to people who aren't even citizens. It really does feel like a right-wing cartoon caricature 
of what the left would do, but that is very much the heart and soul of the hard base of the Democratic Party. And I would imagine that this type of thing in New York is going to be a national rallying cry for Republicans, especially as they're trying to beat back these so-called voting rights initiatives by Democrats in Congress. They want to federalize and nationalize our elections. I think a lot of people worry, is this what they have in mind? And Eric Adams and the Democratic establishment in New York City is not really disabusing people of those fears right now. So I don't think we've heard the last of this. And I think Republicans would be dumb not to highlight it, frankly. Carol, we've got to leave it there for now. Fresh Floridian, Carol Markowitz, columnist of the New York Post and FoxNews.com. Welcome to your new state. Carol, we look forward to having you back from the Sunshine State many times. Thanks, Guy. Thank you. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, and we will be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We're back here on the Happy Hour. It's the Guy Benson Show. Here's a little programming note from Fox News. You all have been watching for months the sort of placeholder show Fox News Primetime at 7 p.m. Eastern, just after Special Report and before Tucker. And there's been a rotating cast of characters filling in during that hour. And it's been fun. I've been a guest occasionally with Katie Pavlich and a few others. And the question was, who would ultimately get that slot? And the decision has now been made and announced today. And it's a name very familiar to Fox News fans and to fans of this show Jesse Waters will now be taking over Jesse Waters' prime time, 7 p.m. Eastern, starting two weeks from tonight. So in the sweepstakes, Jesse won it. He will remain on the five as one of those regular permanent hosts. His weekend show will be replaced, ultimately, and they'll announce that decision later. And then he will get the 7 p.m. hour in a solo slot. So congratulations to Jesse. I mean, what a calendar year, I guess, spanning two calendar years now. Number one New York Times bestseller, now a primetime solo show on Fox News. We wish him well. We wish him best of luck. And I did that show, I think, with him as the guest host more than any other guest host during these last, whatever it's been, six months, eight months? It all kind of feels like a blur, honestly. And we get along well. So, fingers crossed, I look forward to appearing with him once that show finds its footing and they start needing folks like me to come on and have some fun and offer some opinion. So, I will perhaps see you on Jesse Waters' primetime, debuting January 24th, 7 p.m. Eastern, on Fox News Channel. Pop the champagne for Jesse and company and team. And with that, the happy hour. We'll take a quick break and we'll return right after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Earlier today, in our previous hour, we welcomed Dr. Marty McCary back to the program. He's a Fox News contributor, he's a surgeon and professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins, author of the book, The Price We Pay. Of course, we talked about COVID, restrictions, mandates, vaccines. It was a wide-ranging conversation with Dr. McCary. Here's part of it. 
I think it is important to, number one, talk about how good the vaccines are at preventing serious illness and death. That's what this study sort of underscores. But even the number may not be 75%, but we do know that a lot of the deaths around COVID-19 did relate to at least one or more comorbidities. And a lot of people have been talking about trying to protect those folks and have a public policy posture directed at those people as opposed to the you know the broader community that case has been made now for well over a year and it seems like some people now are getting around to maybe thinking that's the right way forward i just want to get your reaction to everything that i just said because i threw a lot at you (laughs) well it's good to be with you guys you know i wish we would have had this data at the beginning of the pandemic or earlier this year we have been pushing the CDC nonstop. I've been doing it till I'm blue in the face, telling them we need data that tells us the characteristics of people who get in trouble with COVID without the vaccine and with the vaccine. And they don't produce this data. We learn about it too little, too late. What we know about the profile of the so-called breakthrough hospitalization and the breakthrough death, that's what you're referring to is that among those who um, have a breakthrough hospitalization, it's about 1 in 26,000. That's all people, young and old. Of everyone vaccinated, 1 in 26,000 will show up in the hospital. Who is that one person? What, what is the characteristics of that individual? North Dakota, of all places, provides a breakdown with characteristics. The average age is 72, and the average age of a breakthrough death is 80. Why don't we have this data? Instead, all we have is this blame game that there's this small segment of the population, including children under five, that we have to blame for widespread transmission. They will not let go of this outdated, now debunked doctrine that the vaccine stops transmission. It doesn't. So on that front, there's another side to this as well, or at least another element of this discussion that I think also plays into the point that you're making, and we'll get to some of this sound later this hour, but the CDC director was on Fox News Sunday yesterday, and our colleague Brett Baer was trying to get her to answer a related question, which is, and we do at the top of the show every day on this show, the case count and the death count in the U.S. We've done it for for two years now, basically, and the death toll in the U.S. is 836,915 right now. And I say those are Americans who have died from or with COVID. And the question that Bayer asked Walensky was, do we know of that number how many of them died sort of incidentally with COVID? They happened to have COVID, but they died really primarily of something else or died because of COVID. And she quickly kind of went off elsewhere and was talking about Omicron. And her eventual answer was that data is forthcoming. Well, you know, the question that I keep asking is, when is that data forthcoming? And I don't think it's, you don't have to downplay the seriousness of the pandemic or be a truther or an anti-vax person or anything to say having that kind of accurate data and understanding what the death toll from COVID truly looks like in this country and who are those people. That seems like pretty basic stuff to me, but we still don't have that basic stuff in a lot of cases. Yeah, that's right. So there are roughly 123,000 individuals in a hospital with COVID or for COVID. We're now, because the CDC has not been telling us this distinction, 
We're now learning among the hospitals reporting the breakdown that about 51% are not there for COVID. So we really have about 60,000 people in the hospital today in the United States for COVID. Now, just to give you a benchmark, I'm not downplaying that number, but that's about what we have in the hospital with influenza in the middle of a bad flu season, almost identical to those numbers. We have about anywhere, depending on the flu season, 400,000 to 740,000 hospitalizations for influenza in a typical season, which is a few months. It's a short season. So we've not been getting the full story. And of course, this information is guiding policy. We're hearing Supreme Court justices, you know, massively... Um, sort of misunderstand the reality of the situation. We have a Wall Street Journal piece that makes the case that Omicron is far less deadly, so that changes the calculus on a mandate. Can you and send yet, a copy? Can you send a copy of that to Justice Sotomayor? By the way, because she <laughs> she got that wrong the other day. But please go on. Yeah, she had a rough day on Friday. She did. Um, she uh, so, but I I really think that she believes the statistic that she's citing, even though it's off by 30-fold when she said the number of people, kids in the hospital. Uh, you know, you can ask Rochelle Walensky how many kids in the hospital today are on a ventilator for COVID. She didn't have that number. She doesn't have that number. So these are the numbers that you would think in an, at an agency with 21,000 employees, somebody would be on top of this. I mean, you would think, but you'd also think we'd have plenty of tests at this point in the pandemic, and we don't. And it's just sort of just a cascading series of failures, some of which might have been a little bit more excusable in the early days and are totally not at this point. And this actually brings me to my next subject matter related to all of this. It was what we opened with today, the situation of day four of school closures in Chicago. And I talked about my friends who are grappling with this, who have kids in Chicago public schools, or in this case, out of Chicago public schools right now, just tearing their hair out. And it's not just Chicago. I saw that you reacted to a claim from a teacher's union out in Northern California that teachers being in classrooms right now is, quote, a death trap. I mean, the way that I described it at the top of the show, doctor, was it feels like these arguments are what was being said and what was persuasive to people nearly two years ago. My full interview with Dr. Marty McCary, Fox News contributor, Johns Hopkins doctor, available online, GuyBensonShow.com. The full podcast available on demand for free every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, time for the home stretch, and I know that it's a little played out, the Hollywood celebrity hypocrisy trope, but this one is a doozy. We'll discuss it when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Glad you're here. Well, it's sort of like paint by numbers, especially in conservative talk radio. Oh, look at this celebrity leftist who isn't practicing what he preaches. Happens a lot. And it's decent fodder for a show like this. You might say it's a little played out, except it keeps playing out is the thing. So I think it's fair to highlight from time to time that people who tell us to do things in our lives differently may not embrace the change that they want to see in the world at the expense of what they want to do in their own lives. And thus, 
we come to the latest story involving Leonardo DiCaprio, the movie star, who was pictured and photographed on vacation near St. Bart's aboard a 315-foot, six-story high with six decks, roughly $150 million mega yacht. And, I mean, in fairness, this thing looks awesome. I don't do that well on boats. I've talked about this before. I struggle with nausea and seasickness. Although, when we went to Greece back in October, our friends had wanted to charter a catamaran for the day. I was very nervous about it because of my proclivity toward seasickness. But I had two patches, one behind each ear, and I was fine. So maybe that's just the solution moving forward. But you look at this yacht, because there's photos of it, six decks, there's a helipad. You can land a helicopter onto the yacht, just, you know, for convenience, obviously. And it just looks fantastic. I mean, you'd hope it'd be fantastic for $150 million bucks. It's got a gym, it's got a swimming pool, it's got a beach club, it's got a movie theater, it's called Vava 2. It's the biggest yacht to be manufactured in Britain, according to the UK Daily Mail. And it's owned by a Swiss pharmaceutical billionaire. And I guess it's available to rent or something like that. DiCaprio's people, because people snapped a few photos of him lounging the sun it looks awesome like i'm not attacking him for doing this if someone's like hey do you want to come on this yacht i would say absolutely assuming i could even come close to affording just getting there but if this were an opportunity i would avail myself of exactly the same opportunity i'm just also not someone running around screaming that the planet's about to end and we all need to radically change our lives and our policies and pay much higher taxes and all this stuff in order to fend off this impending doom for Mother Earth, which is what he does. That's his big passion project in his life beyond his acting work, Leo DiCaprio. So even at whatever, he's late 40s, I want to say, he looks better than I would if I were captured in a paparazzi photograph, although there would be no paparazzi looking for me, right? So that's, that's the good side. He's just hanging out, looking like he is very relaxed. Again, I applaud his vacation. It looks just totally baller. But the thing about this yacht is, according to this same report, in sailing just seven miles, it expends a carbon footprint roughly equivalent to a car over the course of an entire year. That's just seven miles of sailing. So if we really are on the brink of an environmental collapse and it's going to be disastrous for the world, you would think that someone like Leonardo DiCaprio would say, I am going to go without. I'm going to curb my own personal footprint, my own lifestyle. I'm not going to do all the things that might seem fun and awesome because I need to set an example These types of yachts are incredibly wasteful. I'm not going to be caught dead on one. But that was not the choice, apparently, that DiCaprio made. This yacht can accommodate 22 guests, 30 crew, has a range of 5,700 miles. Wow, so D. 
do that math. 5,700 miles when seven mile increments of that is the equivalent of a like passenger car for an entire year on carbon emissions. Now, I'll say this for DiCaprio. He has spent tens of millions of his own dollars on conservation and trying to protect endangered species, and I think that that's great. I think he's made something like $200 million or 200 million pounds is what the article says. So, what, well north of $200 million over the course of his career. Hats off to him. Slow clap. His big breakout had to be Titanic. I know he was in some stuff before that. And he's appeared in hit after hit after hit ever since. I really liked his character. What was the... uh, the movie set in Boston with the corrupt cops and the gangsters and that whole fight. The Departed. Ooh. Some of the scenes he was in were just like jaw-dropping. That was a great movie. I don't dislike the guy. I don't dislike his movies. But, I don't know. He just made a movie about climate change. On Netflix, Don't Look Up. Where it's supposed to be technically, like literally about a comet that's coming or a a huge asteroid that's going to destroy Earth and everyone's not taking it seriously enough and it's not a subtle allegory or a subtle reference. It's just beat you over the head. It's about climate change. Fine, they're trying to make their point. They're trying to do it in an entertaining way. If the message is we're all going to die and it's coming really soon and we have to radically change course or else this will become inevitable. If that's the message, then the hugely wasteful pollution factory that is a super yacht would probably be off limits to someone who believes all of those things. But apparently that is not the case. I would say based on DiCaprio's character's experience in Titanic, I hope that this yacht stays firmly in warm waters. You don't want to go up north because you never know what might happen. End up clinging to a door or whatever. I could not resist the Titanic reference. He's on a ship. It's Leo DiCaprio on a giant vessel. How can you not make the Titanic? Anyway, I have not watched Don't Look Up. It does not really appeal to me. Once people were talking about the politics of it, and it's become sort of this proxy fight about politics. It just doesn't really interest me. But producer Christine and Dan both watched it. Christine, did you like Don't Look Up? No, not at all. How about Don't Watch It? Don't, don't go looking for it <laughs> on Netflix. No, I, my, my husband was really, you know, eager to watch this, and I sat down with him. And it's a long movie, and halfway through it lost me, but I, I, I went through it. I, I don't have anything else to do. Sitting here with COVID, so I figured, why not? Um, it was, it's exactly what you think, you know, liberal Hollywood's going to do with a movie like that. You have the Republican president who has the, oh, let's just wait and see. We're not 100% sure you know, basically saying we're doing the same thing with climate change. So it just, I don't know, it didn't do anything for me. And I, I, I think it's really hypocritical of Leo. And I love me some Leo DiCaprio. But this is actually... So producer Christine gives Don't Look Up, what, two crumbled cookies on your scale? Yeah, if that. If, I don't even know if, if I give my cookies. Dan, did you like it? 
So going in, it it had all the elements I would love. Leo DiCaprio, Jonah Hill, satire. I love me an Armageddon asteroid movie, you know. But I got halfway through, and it fell very much short for me. And I didn't finish it. I just I couldn't do it. Um, oh, you stopped. I stopped. I, I I had a lot of time to finish it, and I just I just didn't. It it just really didn't grab me, and I, I don't know. I just didn't like it that much. I wonder if you or Christine had been aboard this super yacht in the cinema on this yacht, you could have just maybe toggled to the next movie. I, I would like, have feigned interest, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, if you were there with him, you'd be like, "Oh, yeah, so fascinating." <laughs> why are you? Why are you on this gas guzzling yacht, Leo? Well, never mind. Let's not think too hard about that. I'll have another drink. Thank you very much. That would, I think, probably be the go along to get along strategy aboard. What is it? What is it called? Vava two. But yeah, I could not resist this story because it's uh, some Hollywood hypocrisy. Plus, you guys had mentioned that you both at least started the movie over the weekend. So these two elements combined for a perfect home stretch segment topic. And I think we've exhausted it. And with that, we're out of time anyway. Works out actually relatively well. I'll be on special report tonight coming up in the next hour, 6.40-ish Eastern Time Fox News Channel. See you there with Brett Bayer and company. Back here tomorrow on the radio, same time, same place. Thank you for listening, and have a great night. We'll see what happens tonight in the national championship game. I say go dogs, but I'm skeptical. But as a college football fan, I'll be watching. All right, back here tomorrow. Talk to you then. Have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.